Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Steamson, and I'm the uh, frontline and the community groups leader here at City Reach Oakton. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. And I've only recently stepped into this role, and many of you, you're still getting to know me, and I'm still getting to know you. And uh, so I thought uh, to help us get to know each other a little bit better, I thought I'd share one of my interests with you this morning. Now, I like watching sports, and uh, Aussie rules and cricket and American football, they're my top three. And I, th I thought I was a committed sports fan until I came here, until I met Andrew Bloomfield. Oh man, that guy takes it to another level. And so if uh, we're at home and if sport is on the TV in our house, uh, like the Super Bowl was this week, it usually is on because I put it on. And the reason I say usually is because for 50 weeks of the year, that statement rings very true. But for two weeks a year, the last two weeks of January, when the tennis, the Australian Open is on, it's my wife who's the one putting sport on the TV. And so this year, as we were watching and as we were enjoying the Australian Open, it occurred to me just how long a year is and how much can change in just one year. So for example, in 2022, Australia's very own Ash Barty, she won the Australian Open and she became the first Australian woman to win in Australia on home soil since her idol, Yvonne Goolagong Corley did, uh, and she accomplished the same feat 32 years earlier, and it was great that Yvonne could present the trophy to Ash, as you see there in the picture. But then fast forward uh, one year later into now January 2023, and Ash Barty's life looks very different, completely different. She's no longer playing professional tennis, but rather she's preparing herself for the joys of motherhood and for tiny shoes. A lot can change in just one year. Similarly, 12 months ago, Novak Djokovic was a very notable absentee from the Australian Open, having been the center of legal toing and froing over his vaccination and his visa status. And that all eventually resulted in him being deported from Australia, not even playing in the tennis tournament. But then, 12 months on, one year later, the Joker was back in the country, and he was back playing and winning the tournament once again for record-setting 10th time. A lot can change in just one year. And not only can a lot change in one year, well, also, a lot can change in six weeks, because I had the privilege of opening up this True Worship in Community series on January the 8th, and now six weeks later, it's my privilege to conclude the series by bringing you today's message, a community of sacrificial love, as we look at Romans 14. And to make a small understatement, a lot has happened in our church in those six weeks since the start of this series. But if we're going to change gears and change perspectives, I want to draw your attention to today. Because yes, a lot can happen in a year. Yes, a lot can happen in six weeks. But God can do great things in your life in just one day, today. As the psalmist says in Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
So today is another opportunity to worship God for all he has done. Today is another opportunity for each of us to search our hearts, to repent of our sins, and to seek God once more, seek his mercy and seek his compassion. Today it's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, give us ears to hear what God has to say to us today. And throughout the week, as I've been preparing for today, all those things, that's been my prayer. So let it be my prayer once again now, and we'll get into the text uh, of Romans 14 after that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, today is a day that you have made, and we rejoice in the blessing that this day is. Another day to worship you as our Lord and Saviour. Another day to seek your forgiveness, your mercy and your compassion for all our failings. And another day to hear you speak to us from your beautiful and powerful word. So Lord, we humbly ask that today the Holy Spirit would do his mighty work, that he would soften our hearts, enable us to hear and to respond to what you have to say to us today. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Well, as uh, has been mentioned, today is the sixth and final week in our True Worship in Community series, looking at Romans through chapters 12 through to 14. And if one word could sum up this whole series, all this teaching that we've looked at, that one word would be love. We started off the series, we started off at the beginning of Romans chapter 12 by considering how our love for God, and it means that everything that we do, it ought to shape our whole lives, our whole selves, as we offer that to him as our true worship, offer that to him as our living sacrifice. Because that is the only appropriate response to what God has done for us in the gospel, what he has done for us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then next, we consider how we ought to love one another within the church, the body of Christ. How love, it leads us not to think too highly of ourselves, not to be prideful, but rather we look, at, we, we look and we love the diversity of the different parts of the body of Christ, each of which are essential to its proper function and to its unity. And then on several occasions, including last week, we consider how we ought to love our neighbour, the golden rule. For not only is loving our neighbour, whether they be a friend or whether they be an enemy, that law is the fulfilment of all the whole of God's law, but more so, it's this kind of love, which Jesus had for us, while we were still his enemies, and it's the kind of love that he commands his followers to replicate. And so that leads us to today. Romans chapter 14, where once again, love takes center stage as we consider what it looks like to be a community of sacrificial love. Now, in reading Romans 14, it appears like there might be some sort of conflict going on between two groups, which the author Paul, he describes these two groups as the weak and the strong. And as various uh, biblical commentators and scholars, as they've considered this passage, they've studied it, They've come up with two different schools of thought as to the background situation into which the author Paul was writing. Because we know from other historical sources that the Roman Emperor Claudius, 
He expelled all the people of Jewish ethnicity. He got them out of the city of Rome in uh, the year 49 AD. And then five years later, Claudius was no longer emperor. It was now Nero who was emperor. And he reversed the decision of his predecessor. And he welcomed back all those people of Jewish ethnicity. They could come back into Rome. And so it's conceivable that as some Christians of Jewish ethnicity, as they returned to the city of Rome, they returned to a Christian community that was made up heavily of Gentiles, that is to say, non-Jewish people. And so as these two different groups, as they attempted to unite to form the one body of the church, there was conflict. And it's theorized by some commentators that the Jewish Christians, although they now had freedom from the law through Christ, they may have desired to retain their cultural identity and continue to practice the food uh, practices and customs, the regulations that they'd practiced their whole entire lives. And then on the other hand, similarly, it's theorized that the Gentile Christians, well, they were completely free from the Jewish law and as such, they discounted or they disdained the practices of their Jewish brothers. And so, being aware of this tension, of being aware of this conflict, Paul writes to the Roman church in chapter 14 to persuade the law-free Gentiles, the majority, to show tolerance towards their Jewish Christian brothers in the minority and to persuade those strict Jewish Christians to stop denouncing the freedom of their Gentile friends. And so the experience of the Roman church and Paul's teaching in reaction to that situation is the background to Romans 14. Well, that's one school of thought because, of course, we only have half the picture. Unlike other first century churches, uh, such as in the city of Corinth or the region of Galatia, which Paul himself had personally visited, uh, he'd written letters to them, and in the case of the church in Corinth, he'd actually received letters back from them. We aren't aware, Paul had never visited the Roman church up to this point. And we're not aware of any uh, letters that they had sent him asking for his apostolic wisdom and counsel on, on how to resolve the type of conflict that's described here in Romans 14. And so another school of thought amongst the uh, commentators and the scholars is that Paul's experience, based on his many years of ministry amongst Jewish people, amongst Gentile people, in various cities around the Mediterranean, all that experience has provided him with the prompting to write Romans 14. Instead of being reactive, he's being proactive, and he's providing teaching on a subject before it gets to the point of being an issue. So that's the background that lies behind this chapter. And in one sense, we'll never know for certain if Paul was being reactive or if he was being proactive in his teaching. And actually, that's okay, because whether his teaching was reactive or proactive, what we have in Romans chapter 14 is undoubtedly a true and enduring message that the Roman church would have needed to hear and which our church must hear also. And so that message, that truth which we need to hear today is that for us to be a community of sacrificial love, each of us needs to remember your place and remember Jesus' place. Remember your place, remember Jesus' place. 
Because in the reading we looked at earlier, verse 4, Romans chapter 14, it said, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The call to remember the place of Jesus as both Lord and judge is a foundational idea that grounds this whole chapter of uh, the Bible. If you skim through this chapter, chapter 14, you'll notice the word Lord. It appears over and over again. It appears 10 times in the chapter, including twice in this verse, which I've just read out, when you include the synonym master, which is the same word in the original language. And so the critical point, it's repeated and it's emphasized throughout the chapter as it goes on. Jesus is Lord of all. As it says in verse 9, he is the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Therefore, we do well when we remember his place as Lord. And similarly, just as earlier in chapter 12, right back at the beginning of this series, uh, Paul repeatedly warns against thinking of ourselves too highly, against being prideful. Here now in chapter 14, Paul again instructs us not only to remember Jesus' place, but also to remember our place. Just as the references to Jesus' lordship, they're littered throughout the chapter, so are the prompts to remember our place scattered throughout this chapter of teaching. If you quickly look at verse 10, verse 13, verse 15, if you've got the Bible open in front of you, you'll see that all believers are brothers and sisters because we've all been adopted into God's family. In verse 3, we are reminded that all believers, they've already been accepted by God. We're reminded that all believers uh, in verse 4 and verse 8, that we're all servants of Jesus. We belong to him in both life and in death. And what's more, we ought to remember our place as children adopted into the family of God, as people already accepted by God, as people who are servants of Jesus it's not a place that we earned. We didn't get there on our own merits. We actually don't deserve to be there. But it's a place where we each stand on level ground by God's grace, by his mercy, by his compassion. And that's a point that Paul has labored much earlier in this letter of Romans, when in chapter three and verse 22 through to 24, he says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all can freely receive the gracious gift of salvation, the gift of justification the gift of redemption that is available through Jesus Christ. So let us remember our place. What's more, when we, actually when we remember our place, it should fill us with great joy and also great clarity. 
Because what a joy it is to know, to be reminded once again, that when you put your trust in Jesus as your saviour, then you, alongside all your brothers and your sisters aside, alongside you, you're an accepted, loved, cherished, adopted child of God. Isn't that a joy to know? And then at the same time, when we put our trust in Jesus as Saviour, means putting our trust in Him also as Jesus our Lord. And we remember that we are His servant. And that should provide us with great clarity that in whatever we do, it ought to be for His glory. It ought to be to please Him. It ought to be for His honour. And likewise, it also provides us with a great clarity that He is the judge and we are not. Three times, Romans chapter 12, verse 4, then again verse 10, then again in verse 13, we are warned against passing judgment on our fellow believers. And amongst other reasons, we're warned against playing the role of the judge because things go really wrong when we try to do a role that we're not qualified for, a role that isn't ours. You know, to illustrate this point, I'm reminded of a conversation that we had in our community group over the summer break. Uh, we met together for a barbecue dinner and as we're enjoying our good food and good company together and uh, the conversations going back and forth. Uh, because one of our members is uh, studying law, we got onto the topic of whether anyone had served in a jury before. And some of the group, they'd been summoned before, but the nature of their work meant that they couldn't get time off work, they couldn't be replaced, and so they didn't serve on the jury. Other people, they'd never been summoned before, but they wanted to. They thought it'd be really interesting, really exciting. Now, can you imagine, if you received that summons that said, it's your go to turn up for jury duty, and you show up to the courthouse the first day of the trial, all eager and excited, and instead of going into the courtroom, sitting in that special area reserved for the jury, you just keep on walking by and you make your way up to the judge's bench, you throw on the robes, you grab the gavel and you start passing out judgments left and right. Now in that wild scenario, the courthouse security, the bailiffs, well they'd be all over you in a flash and you would be out of there quick smart because in no way would you be qualified to be sitting up there in the judge's seat. I trust that no one here is a judge. Uh, and if we aren't qualified to sit in the judge's seat of our local civic courts, well then, how much more are we not qualified to sit in the divine, eternal judgment seat? We must remember that God is the judge and we are not. And I'll admit, this is a reminder that I have needed just as much as anyone else in the past month in this season of conflict. I know myself that I've fallen into the temptation of judging others, judging their actions, judging their motivations, uh, other people in this church. And I trust that I would not be alone in doing that. Even to read a verse like verse 12, which says, So then, each of us will give an account of themselves to God. And to take delight in the knowledge that other people, they're going to have to stand before God. They're going to have to give an account of themselves, of what they've said and what they've done. 
But God has been convicting my heart. And I pray today that he convicts your heart also. Not to be concerned with what will happen when other people stand before him in judgment, but to be concerned with what will happen when I or when you stand before him in judgment. To be concerned with the log in our own eye before worrying about the speck of sawdust in another's. To, be like the Phar- to not be like the Pharisee, who is so confident in his own righteousness, but to be like the tax collector, who can't even lift his gaze upwards to heaven. He can only beat his chest and cry out for God to give him what he does not deserve, mercy. And so, church, let each of us hear this threefold warning in this passage against judging our fellow believers. Let, and at the same time, let each of us remember Jesus' place. He's our Saviour, He's our Lord, and He's our Judge. And let us remember our place as preciously loved and adopted children of God and as servants seeking to faithfully honour the King. And with this perspective in mind, let me move on to my next and final point. And that point is, for the body of Christ, for brothers and sisters in the family of God, being united is more important than being uniform. Being united is more important than being uniform. So let me read from uh, verses 6 through 8 of chapter 14 again. They say, The one who observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, We are the Lord's. And as mentioned earlier, I don't know whether the author Paul is writing into a real conflict or is providing proactive teaching in this chapter of Romans, but what is absolutely clear is that he is providing this teaching in order to combat disunity, which may arise from different people within the church, each having different opinions and different practices. And don't we know all too well that this type of disunity is not just a hypothetical scenario? And for the first century Roman church, the particular practice that was in dispute was over what food could or couldn't be eaten, uh, whether it was clean or unclean, whether to abstain from eating or whether to eat freely. Now, the issues for us in 21st century Australia, it's unlikely to be around what Uh, foods are clean and unclean, but we know from our own experience in the here and now, as well as from hundreds of years of division, infighting within various Protestant denominations and churches, there are many, many issues which Christian brothers and sisters can have strong but different opinions over. And I don't need to get into any one or the other of the different issues that could be discussed as an example here, because it's the principle behind chapter 14, it remains the same regardless of what the issue is. 
Because uh, look with me at what is emphasized in verse 7 and verse 8. That all believers belong to the Lord. None of us belongs to ourselves. And so this has two big implications. Firstly, belonging to the Lord means that we do have some constraints on how we live, how we act, how we behave. For since we belong to the Lord and we were bought at an extraordinary price, we cannot do whatever we want. Not everything is permissible. Some practices are directly contrary to God's purposes in creation and doing them is an expression of self-will rather than seeking after God's will. For just as Jesus taught us to pray, it is God's will that must be done. And this is why this whole series, it started off with the encouragement, the exhortation to have our minds renewed and transformed by God's word and by God's spirit so that we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, as it said back at the start of this series in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So we cannot do whatever we want. We must live in a way that pleases our Lord. We are his servants. But then the second implication is that from this same starting point of belonging to the Lord, it's clear that believers have some liberty. We do not have to be uniform in how we express our devotion to God. We see this in verse 6, very clearly, where both those who eat and those who abstain from eating, they both do so in honour of the Lord. Two different actions, two totally opposite actions, and yet the intention and the outcome is the same. Both honour the Lord in what they do. Therefore, we ought not to condemn our brothers and sisters within our church community who reach different conclusions on how to express their devotion to God. As it says a bit later on in Romans 14, 15, we must not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Rather, we must be a community of people sacrificially love one another. A people who, as it says in verse 19, who pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding, a people who are united without having to be uniform. So then, to conclude both today and to conclude this series, let me say this. True worship can happen when we remember Jesus' place as our Lord and when we remember our place individually as a servant of him. But for true worship in community to happen, we must also remember the place of our fellow believers. Just like you, they are a loved and accepted child of God. Just like you, they are a servant of the Lord. So let us be a community of people who sacrificially love one another. A community of people who seek to honour the Lord Jesus in all that we do as well as being a community of people who honour one another above themselves. A community of people who are united without having to be uniform. And so now as we respond to this teaching by joining together as one community to worship our God, 
My final words today are to echo the exhortation, the encouragement the Apostle Paul provides towards the end of this block of teaching at the back end of the book of Romans. So from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through to 7, they say, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you and give you thanks that you are a Father who stands with arms open wide, looking at the horizon, ready to welcome home your prodigals. And we just pray that we would welcome one another with the same spirit that you have welcomed us. We just pray that all that we do uh, would be for your glory and for your honour, that your name would be lifted up. And in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you.